happy Palm Sunday. Uh, I'm excited to celebrate today. Now, there's a rumor out there that some golf is being played during this time for my sports fans that are with me here today. Let me just give you a word of caution. If you give any sort of clue to me as to what is transpiring during this message or after, we're going to re-invite this whole process of excommunication into our church practice, okay? I don't need to hear anything about it right now. Uh, that being said, I am excited for Palm Sunday. It, Matt did a great job of introducing, to it, introducing it to us earlier, as did our children, of how this is a significant day. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, uh, when I was a child, I liked Palm Sunday, but I don't know that I really grasped this, the significance of it. And, and part of the reason I liked it is what we already put on display. Is it was a Sunday that I knew I got to kind of participate in some capacity. They would give me these branches. I got to walk in. I got to throw them down. And it was at least a little bit more interactive than your everyday Sunday. And so I, I liked it. But I often missed the greater significance to why it was so important. And, and so as a result, I, I knew it was something that kind of led up to Easter. But it really just felt like a countdown to Easter. It was almost like the opening act, so to speak. You know, it's like the pregame warm-up before the real event gets here. And so I didn't always really grasp how important it was. And so I, I want to piggyback on some of what Matt said earlier and, and have a step into the significance of Palm Sunday as we begin our time today in God's Word. Because the way that this begins is, is with Jesus telling these disciples, go into this village ahead of you and you're going to find this donkey, you're going to find this, this colt next to it. And you're, I want you to untie him and bring it to me. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, just tell them the Lord needs it. And so these disciples, they go on into the village ahead as they're approaching Jerusalem, and they, they find everything just as Jesus had described. They find this donkey, they find this colt, they untie it, and sure enough, somebody asks, what are you doing? They say, the Lord needs it. The person lets him go, and they bring it back to Jesus. And so Jesus gets on this donkey as he enters into Jerusalem, and as we've already declared, right, there are these shouts of praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. They come in, they lay these cloaks down, they lay these branches down. And it's this, this amazing contrast of how Jesus enters Jerusalem in this final week that leads to his crucifixion. Those voices that cry out, Hosanna, ultimately end up crying out, crucify. It's a really significant portrayal for us in understanding the life of Christ. But as I was younger, I, there was always an element to the story that, that kind of seemed off to me. Right? It was the fact that Jesus came in, this triumphal entry, on a donkey. And I thought that was so unusual. Right? I mean, here you have the Son of God, you have the King of Kings, you have this, this mighty teacher who has demonstrated such power and authority through all these this miraculous signs and wonders. And, and I don't think of an animal that's going to elicit this idea of, of power and strength and sovereignty often being a donkey. And so it always seemed a little off. Why, why a donkey? And when you really begin to stop and slow down and, and understand, and the gospel writers pointed out to us, is that this was more than just a, a, a choice of convenience. This was stepping into promises of old. Right? If you were to go to and read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, here's what you see. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, in this triumphal entry, in this declaration of praise, we're reminded of one of the chief characteristics of our Savior, one of the chief characteristics of this Messiah, humility. Yes, he comes in righteousness. Yes, he comes in victory, but he comes in humility. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, this King of kings, is one who comes and presents a message to each of us that I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the same Jesus that in a minute 
matter of just a few days, will sit down at his disciples' feet and wash them. And so in that, he gives us an example. In these shouts of praise, this, this referring back to Psalm 118, Lord, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We see this ancient prayer that the psalmist had given the people. And so you have these words of Zechariah, you have the words of the psalmist all coming together in this poetic portrayal in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And it shows us this very important reality that I don't want us to miss on Palm Sunday, is that all the promises of God are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of them. These ancient words, these ancient prophecies, these ancient prayers find their full fulfillment and expression in the person of Jesus Christ. And I bring that to our attention because we're going to see that again today in our series through Acts. That once again, Jesus fulfills these promises of old. And I want us to not miss that. I don't want us to run past the significance that is Palm Sunday. And so with that being said, let me just pray for us. Let me just pray for the Spirit to illumine our hearts and awaken our minds to all that Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now expectant. Father, we come before you now in need. We come before you, Father, anxious to hear from you. And so we ask that your spirit would descend upon our hearts, our souls, and our minds. God, that your word would once again be living and active. And it would stir us, and it would awaken us to who you are. We thank you, Father, for this Jesus who comes to save. And we join with the voices of ancient past and declare, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For it is in that mighty name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as we get started today, I actually want to take a different approach. Okay? I actually want to begin today with a bit of a quiz. Okay? So let's see who's mentally alert and awake this morning. Okay? So I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. Okay? I want you to imagine that you're a pilot. Right, and you're on this plane in Phoenix, and the plane carries 200 passengers, 200 passengers. And it takes off from Phoenix, and it lands in Las Vegas. And once it lands in Las Vegas, 38 passengers get off, 27 get on. And then you go from Las Vegas to San Francisco. And when you're in San Francisco, 115 passengers get off, and 112 get on. Now, calculate the age of the pilot. Want me to say it again? Try it again. Okay, listen. Pay attention. Stay with me. Imagine you're a pilot. You get on a plane in Phoenix, okay? And it carries 200 passengers. You take this plane from Phoenix to Las Vegas. It lands in Las Vegas. 46 passengers get off the plane. 32 get on. Then you go to Phoenix, from Las Vegas to San Francisco. There, 128 passengers get off the plane and 110 get on. Calculate the age of the pilot. You're looking confused. Has I changed the numbers? Why did I change the numbers? Because it doesn't matter. What's the age? Let me say it one last time for those of y'all that are slow. Okay? You're not slow. We love you. Let me say it one more last time in a way that hopefully you can understand. Imagine you are a pilot, a bunch of irrelevant information. Calculate the age of the pilot. Right? It's your age because it's you. And I love riddles. I don't know about you, but not too long ago over the holidays, my family and I, we sat down uh, around a table and we were sharing all these different riddles back and forth with each other. And one of the things that you can discover with riddles is that the the obvious answer is not really the answer, right? There are all these things that are often there to distract you. So like in that scenario, it makes you think that it's about math. It's not really about math. What is it? It's listening. It's paying attention. 
Every riddle, if you want to figure out the answer to the riddle, it's, it's, it's this ability to pay attention, to listen, to focus, and to take time to understand what's being said. And I put that in front of us this morning as an illustration because that becomes essentially the heart of this message. Right? We're going to get this, this encouragement. We're going to get this word of adoration here or, or of admonition here to, to really stop and to listen carefully to what has been done, to what has taken place here at Pentecost. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of a recap as to what's happened up to this point and why this practice of listening is going to be so important. So Pentecost is this 50-day marker after the Passover. This is the festival of weeks, and, and Jews from all over the nations have come to Jerusalem to, uh, admoni- or to adhere to this festival. And all of a sudden, we see this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see that the waiting for this promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is over. Tongues of fire descend upon these believers. And what, what, is, what happens? What does it enable them to do? It enables them to speak in other languages. And all of a sudden, all these God-fearing Jews are amazed and they're perplexed. And they sit there and they go, how is this possible? These Galileans speaking in a language that I understand, speaking in my birth language. How is this possible? What does this mean? We talked last week that this, this miracle that was unfolding was the miracle of hearing, right? It was this, this amazing revolution of the intimate that all of a sudden all these people were getting a chance to hear this hope of the gospel in their own language. But whether their reaction was one of amazement or ridicule, they were all asking the same question, what does it mean? And so with that question having filled the air, Peter stands up and begins to give an answer. Now, we won't look at the entirety of his answer today, but we'll look at the first part of it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 2, and we'll pick back up in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a a great example, once again, just like we saw with Palm Sunday, of of us referring back to these ancient promises that are being fulfilled through this outpouring of the Spirit. Now, before we get into any direct correlation to what Peter is referencing here in the book of Joel, or from the prophet Joel, let's first acknowledge some key takeaways in just Peter's initial response. Part of what I want us to remember is that as the way in which we concluded last week, is that you had this amazing revolution of the intimate. You had the speaking in tongues, and it was met with several different responses. Some were amazed, they all were confused, but some ridiculed. Now, that's how it ended. Some were scoffing, some were sneering at this, they were skeptical, they didn't understand it. And part of what we talked about last week is that at the very inception of the church, from day one, it was met with ridicule and hostility. And so a question I have for you this morning is, how do you react when you're met with ridicule, when you're met with hostility, especially as it pertains to the gospel, and you feel those, 
the pressure of those voices that are so dismissive about beliefs or about the scriptures or about the Bible or about faith, this, this ancient tale, how do you respond? Do you run? Do you cower? Do you get argumentative? How do you respond? One of the first things that I love about this is that we see this ridicule that's being presented to the church and Peter stands up and answers. And I love that example. Right? He stands up and he answers. And yet what we can see in the way in which he responds and what will be proven to us over the next couple of weeks as we continue to study his response is that he's not responding out of his own personal will and desire in the sense that he's been offended. Right? He's not responding in anger. He's not responding in hostility. What Peter has discovered here in this moment is that the message of the gospel is greater than the messenger. Right? So how he feels is irrelevant. What, what he thinks in this moment doesn't really matter. He has discovered the essence of hope. He's discovered the hope of this message and it has to be shared. And so even in the face of opposition and ridicule, he stands and he answers. And that's the example for you and me, that we have been given this amazing message of hope that is greater than anything about us. It is greater than the messenger. It's greater than our own personal needs, our own personal comfort. And so when we meet against ridicule, we don't need to respond in hostility. We don't need to respond in aggression. We don't need to run. We don't need to cower. We don't need to hide in silence. We can stand and answer and point people to a message that is greater than ourselves. And so Peter sets that example. And that's where he leads us into this instruction, right? The, the central command in the verses that we found, the imperative verb that we find in this text is when he stops and he says, listen carefully. Pay attention is what that means. Don't miss this. Listen up. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more throughout the, the message today about what that means for you and me to stop and to listen carefully. But I want us to consider this from a slightly different vantage point here on the front end of this message. What would it mean for you to say that to someone? If you were to stand up and, and speak of this message of hope that we have in the gospel, and part of your invitation, part of your instruction was to tell somebody, hey, listen carefully, pay attention, I've got something to tell you. How would people respond? Are you one that people want to listen to? And why or why or not? See, I think we all have to acknowledge that that's somewhat of a difficult road to navigate in today's context because it seems like everybody has something to say and no one really listens anymore, right? We've all got an opinion and we're just looking for a platform to get it out there. Whether it's social media, whether it's within our own peer group or our colleagues at work, whatever it is, we've always got something when we just want to continue to declare and speak and speak and we've lost the value of actually listening. And so sometimes it feels like in our culture, in our context, we're living in this shouting match. And so when we begin to, to really implore for people to listen to us, we're going against the grain. And so what's going to make them stop and actually listen? I think this is a great reminder that if we're going to be the bearers of this message and invite people into it, we have to earn the right to be heard. We can't just outshout one another. And so how do you do that? How do you earn the right to be heard? I think part of what we do is we look to the example that Jesus has given us. Right? We, we choose humility. We choose to, to serve rather than be served. Right? We choose confidence not necessarily in ourselves but in the message so that when we finally 
enter in and try to give clarity to a situation or circumstances and we say, hey, listen carefully, people stop, and they listen. So Peter extends this word of instruction. And in addition to that, he points them back to a scripture. First, he dismisses the accusation. All right, first he says, listen, this, this is not what you think. These people aren't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, all right? So, so I understand what you're saying. I understand it's confusing. But what you've, what you've offered here is not true. So he responds to the accusation. But then he points them where they can actually have their question answered. You're going to be asking, what does this mean? Well, let me show you. This is what was spoken of. And so what Peter has done is he's taken them back to the word of God. And so I think that is, again, a reminder of something that we harp on all the time as part of our church, right? That we're going to be biblically guided. That when you and I, when we enter into situations and circumstances and seasons where we find ourselves asking the question, what does this mean? The way in which we find meaning, the way in which we find significance, the way in which we find the appropriate perspective is to turn to the Word of God. That's what influences our understanding. Right? We, we don't allow our context and our circumstances to infiltrate how we see God's word. We let God's word help us dictate how to understand our context and our circumstances. That's the direction it goes. And so Peter's saying, listen, you want to understand what this means. Let's go back to what was spoken of long ago. So the first step of listening carefully is not about listening to each other, even listening to ourselves, but listening to the holy word of God. And that's the example that Peter lays out for us. Now, he takes us to the prophet Joel. And so before we dive into all the different details of this prophecy that, that Joel presents and that Peter is utilizing here, let me just offer a couple of disclaimers about how we're going to read or understand this notion of prophecy. Okay, so, so when you think about a prophet or prophecy in, in, in essence, I guess what, what I want you to think through is the fact that this is essentially at its purest state, someone speaking the word of the Lord. Right? Now, there are elements of it speaking into something that will be fulfilled. But I don't want us to view prophecy or prophets as some sort of soothsayer or magician or fortune teller. At the end of the day, it's, it's this word of God that has been entrusted to these individuals, and they are sharing the word of God. They're, they're sharing a divine utterance, an inspired message. Now, when we begin to read what these messages are, and they do point us to something that is going to be fulfilled, especially in this context and in many other contexts that we see in the scripture, another question we have to ask ourselves, is this realized prophecy or is this inaugurated prophecy? Okay, let me explain to you the difference. Some prophecies are fully fulfilled. Right? So any prophecy speaking to the virgin birth, to the crucifixion of Christ, that's a realized prophecy. It is done. It has happened. Other prophecies are inaugurated, meaning we can sense a beginning of the fulfillment, but they are not yet complete, right? This is the tension we often feel in the promises of God, right? That we live in something that we can experience now, but something that we also know is not yet fully complete. So when we begin to read through certain elements of the prophet Joel, we're going to see this tension. Some things we are still waiting for fulfillment, but some things we can already tell have been fulfilled. So you have to kind of keep that tension in mind when you read through prophecy. Is it realized? Is it inaugurated? Okay. Now, in all of it, though, what Peter is ultimately trying to do in this moment is stress what has been fulfilled. I'll make my position known here in a little bit that I think while there are some things that have yet to be fulfilled in what we're reading... Ultimately, Peter's emphasis is to say, I'm giving this as an explanation of what has actually taken place. Something has been inaugurated in your midst. Something has been fulfilled. And so what is it 
that Peter is using here to give an answer to their question of what does this mean? So when you begin to compare Peter's answer and his utilization of the prophet Joel in this passage, it's, it's Joel chapter 2, there are some slight variations in what Peter has done and what you would actually read in Joel chapter 2. And, and the first variation is in this opening word. If you were to go back to the book of Joel, I think it's what, 228, somewhere around there, it's chapter 2, rather than in the last days, as it reads here in Acts, it would say after this or afterwards. And so there's a difference. And that difference is intentional. Because what Peter is doing is he's trying to explain to them that a new era has emerged, the last days. Something new has just transpired in the course of human history. What you're witnessing is a dramatic shift in the direction of human history. There is the last days that have now begun in your midst. What, it, what are those? What does that mean? Well, for, for the God-fearers at the time, for the Jews at the time, last days meant the age of the Messiah, right? This, this anticipation for this, this Savior, this messianic kingdom. And so Peter is saying that, that moment is now, it's here. But, but I would be willing to venture a guess that for many that were hearing that on this day, that would seem hard for them to believe. And we've already talked about this because their conception and their expectations of what the messianic age would look like was very different, right? Even in Acts chapter one, when Jesus begins to say, wait for the spirit, wait for the promise that my father is going to bring you, they bring up this idea, oh, is it at this time that you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they had envisioned. They envisioned this, this earthly kingdom, this sovereign king, and here on the heels of a crucifixion, Peter is saying the messianic age is here, people had to be going, what is he talking about? And it must have felt somewhat distant. And I can't help but think it feels distant to us, doesn't it? Maybe not in the same way. But if you and I are going to take this text for its fullness and meaning, then we have to acknowledge that we live in the last days as well. We live in the age of the Messiah. But what does that mean? See, a lot of times, I don't know that we really respond to it as we should because we read a passage like this and we think, well, that happened thousands of years ago. So these last days seem to continue to just drag on and, and they don't seem to have an end in sight. They could drag on for another thousand years. And so as a result, we read a passage like this and we don't have any urgency. And we miss the beauty of it. <clears throat> right, that, that ultimately... You and I have been gifted one of the greatest gifts in the course of human history. We know that this salvation has come. We know that this message that is greater than any message is here. It is now. And everything in our life should orient around it. That's how we should live. That's the urgency with which we should carry ourselves to know that we stand and live and breathe and move in the last days. Is that how you live? Is your life marked with that urgency? Is it centered around this message above all else? That's what Peter is trying to invite them into to understand. The last days are here. Now, how do we know that these are the last days? Peter begins to give some description. The first description is that God's going to pour out his spirit. Now, I love this. Right? I love this for a couple of reasons. Because when you see... What Peter's explaining, Peter is explaining the, the different languages that are being spoken at Pentecost, right? And he's saying this is a manifestation of the Spirit's 
power. And what that should do, and what we tried to accentuate last week, is that that takes you back all the way to the ancient promise of Abraham. Right? This is the, the promise of all the patriarchs, that God is going to call for himself a people, and he's going to bless all peoples of the earth through them. And so when these different languages appear, and people begin to hear this hope of the gospel in their birth language, we begin to see the fulfillment of the promises of Abraham. And all the patriarchs and of David and this new covenant that had been promised for so many years. It was here. It was now. All of God's promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's the first thing that you really see with this outpouring of the Spirit. But the other thing I want us to see is that word downpour, right? This, this outpouring. The image that the prophet Joel has given us and that Peter is referring back to here is so much more than a mist. So much more than just a rain. It's a downpour. (laughs) And again, I think that's somewhere where we often fall short. When we think about what Christ has done for us, when we think about the gift of the Spirit, we use words like lavish. We use words like abundance. To live in the age of the Messiah is to live in the belief of the abundance of God's provision. And too often we live with this mindset of scarcity. And I'm not talking finances. I'm not talking wealth. I'm talking about God's presence in your life. Right? When we believe in the outpouring of the Spirit, we should live in a way that believes in the abundance of God's power, not the scarcity of God's power. Is that how you live? That's what we begin to see with this description. And so what is the mark of the Spirit? We've been working on this for several weeks now. Right? Part of what we see is, is that when we look at all the different descriptions of the Spirit and even what we see here and in other places in the Scriptures, that when we begin to see the Spirit poured out on God's people, a couple of things happen. It often leads to external proclamation and internal renewal. Those two things typically happen. People are going to not be able to help but share this message. And then at the same time, they're going to be transformed. There's going to be some form of internal renewal. And so as we've been asking this question over the last few weeks, one of the main questions we've asked is, is your life in step with the Spirit? Last last week the question was, where is the Holy Spirit leading you and into whose lives? This week the question that helps us answer if our life is in step with the Spirit is to evaluate for a moment, where in my life do I see external proclamation of what God has done and where do I see internal renewal? And if I have to say I can't see those things, one or the other or both. And the painful reality is that maybe, just maybe, my life is not in step with the Spirit. For when the Spirit is poured out in our lives, it's going to lead to external proclamation and internal renewal. So where are we seeing that in our life? So the first marker of the end of the days here, these last days, is this outpouring of the Spirit. And we see the Spirit manifest itself in a couple other ways. We see signs and wonders that are described in this reference to Joel. Right? Think, think about all the different signs and wonders here. Some of them I would categorize as something that is actually more of a foreshadowing to what we're about to read in the book of Acts. Right? You see references to prophecy, right? a declaration of God's word. That's what Peter's doing. There, there are numerous speeches in the book of Acts that continue to lead to this proclamation. You see references to visions, right? like the vision that Paul has on the road to Damascus of Jesus. You see references to James, like the dream that Peter has at Cornelius' house. You see all these things that ultimately begin to be described in the book of Acts. Prophecy, vision, dreams. But then you see these other signs and wonders 
that depending on how you interpret this text are either realized prophecy or inaugurated prophecy. Right, now you start to get into language like blood and fire and billows of smoke and sun being dark and the moon turning to blood and it sounds pretty creepy, right? And, and different people take different approaches. Some people would say that you don't have to look for a literal manifestation of these things in the course of nature, that some of this was, was ultimately fulfilled on the cross, right, when Jesus was crucified and the sky is darkened. But others would say, no, this is inaugurated prophecy, right, that we're still waiting for some of these other signs and wonders to declare the fullness of this age of the Messiah. That's probably where I land, right, that I, I probably land to, to some of these we're still looking for, we're still waiting for. But what they ultimately are doing, these signs and wonders, are ultimately pointing people to the great and glorious day of the Lord. And I think that's where we can begin to really resonate with it on both the now and the not yet. Right? Because the great and glorious day of the Lord was really, or at least the way I would interpret it, is going to be ultimately fulfilled with Jesus' return. Because the way in which the great and glorious day of the Lord was often understood would be a day of judgment, right? a, a, day, a day of, of divine intervention into the course of humanity, but also a day of deliverance. And so we find that in its fullness at the return and the promise of the return of Christ. This, this ultimate day where we stand before our creator and give an account for everything we've done. And in that, we find this, this ultimate intervention into our destiny. But we also find ultimate deliverance through the name and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we long for that day. We look to that day. But we also experience it now, don't we? Because this is in many ways the work of the Spirit. Right? The work of the Spirit judges us. It convicts us. It open our, opens our eyes and our hearts to the reality of sin. It intervenes in our lives, and it leads us to the hope of deliverance. It leads us to the hope that we have in this gospel. And so while we still wait maybe for its ultimate fulfillment, we can still experience this awakening, this conviction. This is how we know that the Spirit is working, that we can anticipate this glorious day of the Lord, and we can begin to refine and repent and renew our lives even now while we wait. So it points to this day. So you see these signs, you see these wonders, you see these things that are being described here in Joel chapter 2. But one of the things that I think is so instrumental about the way in which Peter is using Joel chapter 2 for the rest of his sermon that we'll see over the next couple of weeks is that final line. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what he's done with that statement, referring back to Joel, is he's invited them back into this longing, this mystery, this, this time where the people of God longed for and yearned for to know this Savior, to want to know the identity of this Messiah, this King who would come and deliver God's people. Oh, for the day in which we could know that name, that reality, that person, and Peter is bringing them back into that prophecy just to set them up to reveal that that mystery is no more. This name is no longer hidden from you. It is known. That this Messiah, this Savior, is Jesus. And he has been given the name that is above all names. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's where he's leading them. And that the work of Jesus, the whole ministry of Jesus, is the work of salvation. And when we call on his name, that's what we discover. That word save means to be rescued from peril. 
So everything that you need, all the hopes, all the wants, all the needs, all the desires, this rescue from brokenness is found in Jesus, in Jesus alone. It's here that you can be saved. And this is where it begins to take shape into this beautiful message of hope, this good news. And so when we think about how Peter is using this as an introduction to a sermon, there are a couple of implications that I want to make sure that we don't miss this morning. Here's the first one. It's for everyone. This message is for everyone. Young, old, male, female, slave, free. The outpouring of the Spirit is for all people. We talked about that at length last week of how that will compel us to different nations, different languages, different barriers. But I want us to consider it from another angle this morning. I want you to see that this message of hope is for every person, yes, even you. Because I recognize that for many of us that are here today, we come before this scripture, we sit in these pews, and we go through these motions, and even if we're familiar with the story or we've heard it for the first time, there are some of us here today that feel as if it's beyond our reach. That we have somehow fallen beyond its grasp. And I don't know what makes you feel that way. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's your shortcomings. Maybe it's your failures. Maybe it's your mistakes. I don't know what it is. But if there is anything within you that tells you that this isn't for you, hear me today. That is a lie. Regardless of your shortcomings, regardless of your failures and your imperfections, you can never fall beyond the grips of God's grace. It's for everyone, every single person. But what we must not miss, we need to listen carefully, is that there is something that's required of us to experience it. We have to call out. We have to call on his name. That word call literally means to ask for help. See, it's not enough for us just to listen. It's not enough just to, to contemplate. It's not enough just to think about. We actually have to ask for help. I don't know about you. I struggle with that at times. It's easier for me just to go, you know what, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And there's, there's a resistance at times in our lives to ask for help. And why is that? I think sometimes it's because asking for help admits a level of weakness. It admits some of our inabilities. It creates a vulnerability within our own heart, within our own mind. And so we, we often hold it at arm's length. Do I really need to ask for help? And part of what we see here, and part of where Peter is leading this crowd, is that if you truly want this hope, you're going to have to ask for it. That's the step. And so that's something that I want to make sure that we all do today. And so I want to present that to you on a couple of levels. First and foremost, if you're here today and you've never truly called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, then wait no longer. Right? This is the message of hope. Right? That there is something that separates all of us from our Creator. You can call it sin. You can call it brokenness. You can assign whatever label you want to it. But everything you can do to try to fill that emptiness, to try to fill that void, nothing will work. And the good news of hope is that God sees us 
in that brokenness and he steps into our brokenness through the person of Jesus and he says, if you would just turn and believe and follow me, I'll restore you to a right relationship with the Father. And so we give, we are given these options to call on his name, to repent and to put our heart and our trust in him. If you've never done that, do it today. If you've called on a, an idea, a morality, a church, but you've never called on Jesus, then don't let another day pass. Here in a moment, we're going to have some time of prayer, and what I would invite you to do is to use that time to just acknowledge your need for Jesus and to ask him for his help and declare him as Lord in your life. And if you end up praying that prayer, tell somebody. Tell me, tell a minister, tell a friend, tell a stranger, tell someone. But don't let another day go beyond. And for the rest of us, that perhaps maybe that's something we've already acknowledged, part of what we discover on this journey of faith is that that cry for help doesn't stop. That's not just a one-time prayer. It's not just a, a, a pathway, a, a rite of passage to baptism that then we're stopped and we're done and we no longer need help. We no longer need saving. What we should discover is that the life of being a disciple, one who continually follows after Christ, we always look to him to save us. And so for the rest of us in here today, I'm wondering, what is it that you need to be saved from? How would you complete that prayer? Lord, save me from depression. Save me from anxiety, complacency. Save me from this grief. Save me from this addiction. Save me from this lust. Save me from this apathy, this greed. Save me from this envy, this comparison game. Save me. How would you complete that prayer? Part of what I hope this does is, is awakens all of us to step back into these shouts of praise that we saw on Palm Sunday and we can once again fall at his feet and say, Lord, save us. And do so with an assurance and confidence that he will hear and he will respond. And so here's how we're going to close. The way we're going to close is just with some intentional time of prayer. And we're going to do it in two capacities. First, I'm going to ask that you would just learn to listen carefully to the Lord. To quiet your heart and your mind and your soul. I know sometimes that's hard for us because we want to think about schedules. We want to think about lunch menus. We get distracted by the people sitting around us. We don't like silence. And so as a result, we struggle to listen. But that's the command from this text. Listen carefully. Let the Lord speak to you this morning. And then I'm going to navigate us through the rest of this time of prayer where I'm going to invite you to call out. Just in your own heart and your own mind, but to call out to your Lord and to, to ask him to save you from whatever it is that you need to be saved from. And that we can step into the beauty of this Palm Sunday, that we can listen carefully and see that we have a God who saves. So why don't you bow your heads and let's just spend some time in prayer. And for the first few moments, I would ask that you would just listen for the Lord. You'd even ask him, Lord, show me how to pray. You would maybe invoke the words of the psalmist and tell him that you want to be still and know that he is God. Just listen to your creator.
you to ask him to reveal things to you that are hidden. And if there are areas in your life that you need to surrender, that he would make them known to you this morning. If there are things in your life that have created confusion, disillusionment, find yourself asking, what does this mean that you would stop and you would ask him and you would listen and let him speak to you? And I want you to compliment that prayer by also calling out. I want you to call out to him and ask him to save you from whatever it is that you need saving from. I want you to ask for deliverance. I want you to ask for freedom. I want you to ask for purpose. That you would surrender your hearts at the feet of this King of Kings and cry out, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Father in heaven, That is our prayer. And I pray, Father, that as we leave here today, we would do so completely mindful of this sacred week of holiness. Father, this week that leads us to this covenant that is poured out in a new blood and in a broken body. That you would lead us to the foot of the cross. That you would lead us to the agony of death the burial, and yes, God, to the empty tomb to see that you have brought all the promises of old into fulfillment through Jesus. And that, Father, that each of us today would be able to leave here knowing that regardless of what life may bring, regardless of what it is that we may encounter, we can see that Jesus Christ is the greatest gift of all gifts and that he is ours. We belong to him. He is ours today, tomorrow, and forever. And so may we walk beside our king. May we sing with praise and adoration all that he has done for us. And put our hope fully in him. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray these things. Amen.